Hi, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ. Thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and learn what it means for our lives and for the church today. This is the second in a series that I preached in 2006 at the Franklin Church of Christ, taking a look at Christ's counsel to his churches as we're in the midst of a cultural battle. This lesson is going to take a look at Christ's counsel to the Ephesian church found in Revelation chapter 2. I hope it's beneficial. Open your Bibles to Revelation 2 and let's learn about Christ's counsel for his church at Ephesus. The churches of Asia were facing a cultural battle. Their government was opposed to what they were doing. There was false religion and even false teaching rampant among the churches. And there in Asia, there were seven churches that represented different approaches to handling that battle. We find Jesus' counsel to those churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. The very first church that Jesus addressed in that book was the church at Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we're going to be looking at these seven churches as Christ gives counsel to His churches in the midst of their cultural battle because, in fact, the situation that they were in is the situation that we are in. A battle with our culture. A battle with the culture that goes on around us. A government that is opposed to what we teach and what we do. False religion, false teaching, and the world around us. And we need to take a look at these churches And to any degree that we mirror where they are, we need to follow the advice that Jesus gave them. Keep in mind that there are seven of them, and so tonight we're only looking at one. This is not the full picture of Jesus' counsel to the churches, but we're just going to be taking a look at one of them. As we we look at all of them throughout the course of this year, we're going to find out the full picture of Jesus' counsel for His churches. But tonight we're going to take a look at Ephesus. And, And let me point out, We're just going to be taking a look at various times throughout the year at these seven churches. Where we mirror them, we need to follow the advice that Jesus gave them. This is not me deciding, oh, we have these issues here. This is not an accusation of the Franklin Church or anybody here within us. Let's just take a look at what these letters say. And if we mirror the congregation and the problems that they're having, then we need to follow the advice that Jesus gave them. Again, we're going to be looking at all seven of them tonight, however, We're just going to be looking at Ephesus. Would you bow with me in prayer before we get started, please? Glorious and almighty Father in heaven, we are humbled in your presence, amazed that you allow us to come here and worship you. And we pray that you would accept what we offer to you. We recognize that it doesn't come close to extolling your virtue, your glory, your majesty, your justice, your mercy, your holiness, your power. Father, we are completely in awe of you. And we thank you that you accept what we bring to you. And we pray that you would strengthen us to get better at extolling you and magnifying you. Father, we're thankful that you've given us the ability to sing tonight. That you've given us the opportunity to pray. The opportunity to study your word. To worship and honor and glorify you. We praise you, Father. And pray that you would continue to be with us throughout this time. Help us as we examine these churches of the first century. That we will be able to gain from the advice that you offered them through your Son that we can learn how to better present your gospel to the community around us, how better to overcome the cultural battle that we're facing, how to overcome Satan and his minions. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to be a shining light here in Middle Tennessee. Forgive us where we've fallen short of that. Help us to take the way of escape and overcome the tempter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The Scripture there reads, Revelation 2 and verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As Jesus wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, things were not all bad there. There were some good there. He pointed out to them, this you do have. And we noticed that there were some good things. How do we compare to the good things that Ephesus had? The very first thing we recognize, he said, I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance. And later in the letter he says, and you did not grow weary. In Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Paul had pointed out in verse 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul warned that it might be easy to grow weary in well-doing, in doing good. But that wasn't Ephesus' problem. Ephesus didn't have a problem with that. Notice the progression. As John wrote, he said, you worked. You worked hard. And you worked hard even in the face of hardship without growing tired. No doubt, this is a congregation that had lots of plans and lots of work. On work days, they didn't have problems getting people volunteering to be there and doing whatever was necessary. If there were certain things that they wanted to accomplish, they were going to do it. They were hard workers. There were lots of things going on. They were busy. The question we have is, how do we compare? If everyone were just like you, how would we compare? But that wasn't all that Jesus said in their favor. The second thing he pointed out to them was you cannot tolerate evil men and you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I'd like to share with you something from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia that I think puts a little light on this. The Temple of Diana was in Ephesus. Listen to what the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia tells us about Ephesus. It had become a sanctuary for the criminal, a kind of city of refuge, for none might be arrested for any crime whatever when within a bowshot of its walls. That is the Temple of Diana. If you were within a bowshot of the walls of the Temple of Diana, it didn't matter what you had done, you could not be arrested. There sprang up, therefore, about the temple, a village in which the thieves and murderers and other criminals made their homes. The temple of Diana was a haven of criminals. It was a place for people to hide in their sins, but Ephesus recognized that the temple of God was not to be such. The church at Ephesus was not a place for impenitent sinners to come and hide. The church would not cover up for them. The church would not just let it ride. They would not tolerate wickedness and evil. 
If folks would not repent, they would not be a part of the church at Ephesus. It goes on to say, and you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans, but we do know what Jesus said to the church at at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. He said, I have a few things against you because you, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It seems that the Nicolaitans were going along with this idea of the teaching of Balaam. Now we know about Balaam. Balaam didn't actually teach the Israelites to commit idolatry. Balaam simply taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Walk that line. Push them to the edge. And what we learn about Ephesus is that not only would Ephesus not tolerate impenitence and sin, Ephesus would not tolerate this idea of pushing the envelope or walking the line or walking along the edge as so many people want to do today. Ephesus recognized that the church is the place for people to come and be cleansed of their sins, not to hide in them. The church is the place to come and be separated from sin, not to try to walk as close to it as possible. And they would not tolerate impurity of morals or doctrine. How do we compare? If everyone in the congregation were just like you, how would we compare? Jesus went on and one more thing He pointed out to them. He said, you even test apostles. You remember back in Acts chapter 20? Paul, at that time, when he thought it was going to be his last trip, He called the Ephesian elders to himself, and in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul warned the elders at Ephesus. He said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul had said, I know that savage wolves are going to come. Ephesus recognized that warning and they heeded it seriously. Even to the point that if somebody came in saying, I am an apostle, they put them to the test. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, also earlier wrote in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. John wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Again, the church at Ephesus took that warning very seriously. They recognized there is but one source of authority, and that is the apostles' doctrine. The doctrine that was revealed by the Holy Spirit to the apostles and prophets, called by the Spirit. And they would not allow for any other source of authority. They would put people to the test who claimed to be able to pass on that source of authority. And they would find them wanting. Here was a congregation that would not tolerate deviation from the doctrine of Christ. How do we compare? If everyone were just like you, how would we compare? But the amazing thing is, for all the good that Ephesus had going for it, for their, for their moral purity, for their doctrinal purity, for all of the, the testing that they would give to make sure that they were just sticking with the Word of God, Jesus still said to them, but I have this against you. We all know what it was that He said He had against them. We've all heard of it. He says, you have left your first love. 
I believe that the picture here that Jesus is presenting to the church at Ephesus is very similar to the one that God presented to Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. The Word of the Lord came to me saying in Jeremiah 2 and verse 2, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2, Thus says the Lord God, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of His artists, and all that devoured it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. God looked at Israel and said, I remember the love that you had back when we were betrothed, back when we entered the covenant. You would follow me even through the desert. You loved me so much. But Israel had fallen from that initial, that first love. I believe that Jesus is making that very same point to Ephesus. There was a time when they had had that betrothal love. And they didn't have it anymore. You know, the love just right after the wedding. Well, we just got to go see a wedding yesterday. And we know what kind of love Kimberly and Clayton have, right? I mean, that kind of love that they just hang on every, every word that they say. They just want to be around them, right, Sheila? Just want to be right around each other because, you know, even if you're not doing what I want to do, that's, that's where I want to be. But we also recognize that in far too many marriages, that gets lost. And you finally get to that point where we're just going through the motions, because we know that's what we're supposed to do. And so we're still doing some husbandly and wifely things. We haven't just gone off and left each other, but there's really not that spark. There's not that passion. There's not that just excitement about being with one another and doing what one another wants. It's just not there anymore. We're just kind of going through the motions. Still doing some things right. But the motivation that used to be there is gone. I believe that's what Jesus is saying has happened to Ephesus. They're still doing some things right. They're going through those motions. They're persevering. They're continuing on even in hardship. But that motivation they initially had was gone. The love was gone. Now, we recognize from passages like 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. And we've read 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. So this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. And we accurately from this passage teach and point out that loving God and loving others means keeping God's commandments. However, we need to recognize that a strict adherence to God's rules can still fall short of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter on love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 3. Notice what Paul said there. He said, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul here says that it would be possible to give everything he had to the poor and, and not love them. Paul said it would be possible for him to go through the martyr's death and be delivered to be burned and not love God. So we recognize that while loving God 
is keeping His commandments, there is still that motivation, that feeling, that, that passion, that desire to be with God and do God's will and do what He wants. That's loving God. We recognize from Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him in Matthew 22 and verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two great commandments. Those govern everything we do. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, the Hebrew writer said, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The governing principle of God's law is loving Him and loving one another. Our goal in everything we do is to help folks love God. It is the motivation and the goal. But Ephesus had fallen from that. They'd fallen from being motivated by loving God and loving those whom God loved. They were doing some things right. They were strict adherence to the rules. But they were no longer motivated by devotion to God. How does a fall like that take place? Well, I'm not completely sure. We speculate a little bit, but if the analogy that we've set up is accurate, that Jeremiah 2 and verse 2 demonstrates the same principle, I think we can make some parallels between marriage and, and our relationship with God. Why does the, why do love's heels cool in marriage? Typically, it's because that neither our spouse nor marriage are exactly what we expected it to be. And as we begin to realize that, sometimes that love just wanes a little bit. I think the same thing can happen as, as a church and as Christians. Life with God, life as a Christian, life as a congregation is rarely what we initially expected it to be. And when things don't turn out the way we expected, it's very easy to kind of back off and not be as devoted as we were when we just started. It's very easy for that same thing to happen. They had fallen from their initial love. We need to think about where would that lead? What's the real problem here? I mean, after all, it sounds like they're still doing quite a bit that's right. Well, I think we need to notice that, first of all, the reason this is going to be a problem for them is that while they were doing a lot that was right in verse 5 of Revelation 2, we do need to remember that one of the pieces of advice that Jesus gives them, which we're going to look at more closely in a moment, was do the deed you did at first. The fact that they had fallen from this initial love was already impacting their walk with God. In Ephesians chapter 4, Beginning at verse 1, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Paul had written, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The reality is, if we lose that initial betrothal-type devotion, that, that initial love that we have, it's going to impact our walk. But of course, the greater danger is even just thinking about marriages. Do you know any marriages that have ever just gotten to that point where, uh, you know, we really don't love each other anymore, but we are going to at least just go through the motions and keep doing what's right. Have you ever known any marriage that's able to just hang out right there at that spot? Of course not. They either have to work on it, or it's just going to deteriorate and get worse and worse and worse. And they'll move from the, hey, we're still doing what's right, even though we don't really love each other anymore, to, well, we're not doing what's right anymore, but can you really expect this to? I mean, after all, we don't love each other anymore. And so that's what's going to happen at Ephesus if they don't change. As we look at this and what would be progressed out in Ephesus' future, and any future of a church who is in this situation, I think we'll see one of two things happen. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 2. See what happened to Israel when they had left their betrothal love. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 5, thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me? that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt? I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land, and my inheritance you made an abomination. The priest didn't say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. Israel lost its patrol to love, and they just went off after others. They went off after that that was empty. You know, it's very interesting. You take a look at a congregation like Ephesus, and because they are so morally and doctrinally pure, it would look like it would take years and years and years for them to abandon God. But the reality is, because they're just following a set of rules, and it's no longer about being devoted to God and loving God and loving those whom God loves, they're not devoted to God in His way. And it won't take much for Satan to twist it. And they abandon God. And the whole world becomes amazed that a congregation like Ephesus completely leaves the Lord. Another possibility is going in the way of the Pharisees. I find it interesting in Luke chapter 11 and verse 42. Luke chapter 11 and verse 42, as Jesus is pronouncing the woes on the Pharisees, He says to them, Woe to you Pharisees! This is Luke 11:42. For you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. They paid attention to the minute details of God's law, but they had abandoned the weighty principle of love. Even when they tithed, and even when they were wholly devoted to tithing all the way down to the spices, could you imagine emptying out your pepper shaker and counting off nine of them and then one going over to the Lord? Even to that kind of devotion to maintaining the rules of God, and yet God says, but you didn't love them. 
This wasn't about loving God and believing that God's way was best. This was just about, well, we're Jews and these are the rules, and so we're going to follow them. And the same thing can happen in the church. It's not about loving God and being devoted to God and the people God loves. It's just about finding the rules and just let's, let's just follow the rules. And when that happens, they can go the way of the Pharisees. What happened to the Pharisees? They started drawing lines and drawing boxes around God's laws. And after drawing one line after another and one box after another, eventually their lines and their boxes became more important than the law of God they had initially intended to honor. And while they still had the semblance of holiness and godliness, they were denying its power. And the same thing can happen in a church like Ephesus that leaves its first love, that's left that devotion, that betrothal-type love for God. And of course, Jesus pointed out to them, I'm coming to you, and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place. Why is this so disconcerting for Ephesus? Why is this so important for them to listen? Because Jesus says, if you don't change, I'm going to judge you. I have no idea if by this Jesus means that the people will still be meeting, they'll still have a building, and they'll still be getting together uh, every so often. I just won't view them as a church, a faithful church anymore. Or if what he means is he's going to be sending in some kind of judgment that's going to wipe them out. I don't know. All I know is Jesus says if you don't change to Ephesus, you're going to be judged. And so it's important. What was his advice to this church? Three things he said to them. Remember from where you have fallen. I want to point out, first of all, this advice can only apply to those individuals in those churches that can look back and say, we did have that kind of love. We did have that kind of devotion. Because if you look back and say, I never had it, you can't remember it, can you? But for those who can remember that, who can look back and say, I had that kind of betrothal love, that, that absolute devotion to God, I just wanted to be with God, I just wanted to do God's things because I love God and because I love the people God loves. Jesus says, if you've fallen from that, remember from where you have fallen. Think about what it was like. What was life like when you first became a Christian and you were devoted? What was life like when the congregation initially was established and all the things that were going on? Remember that. I'll tell you what, it's just like that marriage. That marriage where things, the, the, the fires have started dying, what happens when you look back and remember what it used to be like? You go to the movies and you see some, some sappy chick flick. And you start, you know, you're, you start crying. Why are you crying? Not because it's so sad, but because you remember how our marriage used to be like that. Anybody ever, ever have that feeling? I don't have that feeling because our marriage is still like that. But I know that other people go through it. You remember what is It'll produce some sadness. It'll produce some mourning when we remember what it was like. And I remember 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Which leads to the second piece of advice that Jesus offered. He said, remember from where you have fallen. Think about what it was like. Remember that picture and repent. 
remembering that relationship we had, if we see that it's that the fires have died, it'll produce sorrow and mourning and will push us to a godly repentance that will lead to salvation. And Jesus told Ephesus, repent. How many sermons have we heard on repentance or Bible classes? We know what repenting means. We've, we've heard what the Greek words mean and how it means to think through again and how easy it is in our marriage relationship and our relationship with God to just allow things to change slowly over time and we don't think about it we don't realize how much it's changed. And so Jesus says, think it through again. Take a look at the picture and reconsider your relationship with God. Bring it back into line, he told Ephesus, with that initial betrothal type love that you had. And the final piece of advice that he gave them was, do the deeds you did at the first. As we pointed out earlier, clearly, despite all the good things that Ephesus was doing, despite going through these motions and, and strictly abiding by so many of the rules that God had established in His new covenant, there was something that they weren't doing anymore. And Jesus says to Ephesus, you need to go back and do those things you did at first. And it's really, it's just, again, it's just like marriage counseling. If you're ever talking to somebody who says, boy, the fires have died, you know one of the best things you can tell them is, think about what it was like when you really loved each other. What kind of things did you do back then? Do those things again. Going on dates, holding hands, opening the door for her, buying gifts and roses, flowers, saying kind things to one another, just spending time with one another, conversing and listening. You start doing those things that you did when you were in love, and guess what will happen? That love will start being kindled again. And that's Jesus' response to Ephesus. He said, you've left your first love. If you want to bring that first love back, think about what you used to do and start doing that again. Don't wait until you just have the feeling to do it. Start doing those things again. And the love will grow. If you take a look at the Scripture, there's not a whole lot of description about the first acts of devotion from the Ephesus church. But I think we do see a good example of what would happen in a faithful church that was devoted to the Lord in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. These initial works of betrothal type devotion. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, the Jerusalem church, it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Because that church was devoted to God, because they were in love with God, because they loved God and loved the people that God loved, they were devoted to His Word. They were devoted to hearing what He had to say. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They listened. They, they were at the edge of their seats, hanging on every word that God said. They were devoted to fellowship. Because they loved God, they loved the people that God loved. Because they were friends with God, they wanted to be around God's friends. And they were devoted to being around them. To the breaking of bread. Because they loved God. They weren't sitting there and expecting and waiting for God to do something new to demonstrate His love. They constantly remember, remembered the great thing that God had already done to show His love. Through the death of His Son. And to prayer. Because they loved God, they talked to Him. And they praised Him and they extolled His virtues. They humbled themselves before Him. They prayed. They were devoted to Him confessing their sins and their shortcomings, apologizing. They prayed. 
because they were devoted to God. Those were the things that folks do when they're devoted to people. Those are the things that Christians did when they were devoted to God. I have no doubt those are the things Ephesus did. Perhaps there were some other things that Ephesus did, some particular things that they could think of, some particular actions that they had taken. Whatever the case may be, we see here a general issue of being devoted to God. They had lost that betrothal-type love, and Jesus said, go back to it, and here's how. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent of it, and do those things you were doing at the first. And that rekindles that initial laugh. And he said in verse 7, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He said to Ephesus, you've got two choices. You can keep on down the path you're going, and I'm going to remove your lampstand. Or you can remember, repent, and repeat. And you'll overcome. And I'll let you eat of the tree of life and the paradise of God. You'll be able to reach out and grab that fruit and eat of it and live forever. Eternal life awaits those who maintain their betrothal devotion to God. So the question remains for us. How do we compare? Where are we in this? And what advice do we need to follow here? Only you can answer that for yourself. I can't answer that for you. But if you have fallen from that betrothal devotion, remember, repent, and repeat what you used to do. I hope this look at the Ephesian church and Christ's counsel for their cultural battle has been beneficial to you and edifies you to glorify and honor God. Let's remember to stick with our love for God, that that's the motivation and that is the goal. If you have any questions about the church at Ephesus, about the church at Franklin, about loving God, about God's love for us, whatever your question, please give us a call at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps someone has given you this lesson on CD or audio tape. If that's the case, please go to that website I just mentioned, franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons there that you're free to download, both in audio and outline format. Use them in whatever way you believe will glorify God and help others love Him. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.